Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I did an episode about the early history of laptops. And uh, I talked about the emergence of portable computers in general. It took a surprisingly long time to get to the clamshell form factor that we tend to associate with the word laptop. Okay, it really actually wasn't that surprising. Because when your display technology of the time relies heavily on cathode ray tube or CRT monitors you can't exactly slim that down. Now, these are the old-style monitors. They're also old-style CRT televisions, which are those big boxy things, the really heavy boxy monitors. And in fact, I'm going to start this episode by explaining what's going on inside those old sets so that we can understand why they're so big in the first place and why that meant that the early portable computers were pretty hefty things. So... If you listen to that last episode, you heard me talk about how computers used to take up entire rooms, or sometimes entire floors of a building. These machines were massive, largely because the components that designers used were themselves big. The parts that the computer were made of were large. There were no transistors especially no transistors that were down to the nanoscale back in those days. Circuits were actually made up of big wires and stuff like vacuum tubes, and those took up a lot of space. A CRT display or CRT television has something similar inside of it. The screen you look at is actually the end of that vacuum tube-like structure. In fact, I would argue that the cathode ray tube, the vacuum tube, and even the light bulb are all closely related. They are all components that have a filament inside them. The filament heats up when you pass electricity through it. They all have glass that surround the filament. And what we're really interested in is the energy that that filament gives off as a result of being heated. Now, with light bulbs, which are not a vacuum... That is one major difference between them and vacuum tubes and CRTs. But with light bulbs, the energy it gives off is, drumroll please, light. The filament heats up due to that electrical resistance until it's hot enough to glow. And with cathode ray tubes, it's not light, it's electrons. So we'll start super basic. Electrons are, of course, those negatively charged subatomic particles. And typically we find them in an orbit around an atomic nucleus. The atomic nucleus has positively charged protons, and those attract electrons, because opposite charges attract one another, and like charges repel one another. Well, if you start to pour energy into an atom, then you're going to start pushing electrons further out from that nucleus. The electrons furthest out would be the ones that would be affected. They would move into energy levels, energy shells, further out from the nucleus. So if you pour enough energy in, you can actually pop that electron right off and you ionize the atom. In fact, that's kind of why we worry about ionizing radiation. It has this sort of energy that can do this. It can turn atoms into ions. Those would be atoms that have a net charge, whether positive or negative, due to either losing or gaining electrons compared to the number of protons. So electric current is the flow of electrons. Uh, 
well, you know, actually that's, that's only partly correct as you could have a flow of protons in something like a plasma. And that would technically be an electric current too, because electric current is really concerned with the movement of electric charge, not whether or not the charge is positive or negative, but we can leave that behind because 99 times out of 100, when we talk about electric current, we're talking about electrons. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the screen on a television is the end of the cathode ray tube. So a television screen is just a very, very wide tube ending. The other end is very narrow indeed. So at that opposite end, the opposite side from the screen, way back inside the television or the computer monitor, is the cathode. Uh, and the electron gun. So the cathode is the negative terminal. It's the thing that emits electrons when you turn on the power. So the inside of the, the CRT, the actual tube, is a vacuum. That means that the electrons that are emitted can move freely through that space. There's no air molecules that the electrons could potentially interact with. That's why you have to have a vacuum inside a vacuum tube or a CRT is to let these electrons flow freely and not have to worry about them interacting with something else. You have the anode or the positively charged terminal of the CRT toward the screen side. So that's what's attracting the electrons toward the screen. As the, the beam of electrons hit the backside of the screen, it impacts phosphor. Uh, so the inside of the screen has a phosphor coating on it. So when an electron hits phosphor, the phosphor ends up being quote unquote excited. And it's not because you're settling down to watch Tiger King or whatever. No, the electron imparts energy to the phosphor and the phosphor luminesces as a result. So that means it gives off light. And there's a lot more to it than what I just described, but I've done full episodes on it, and it would take a long time to go into all the details, but here are the big takeaways. Before companies had found ways to bring the manufacturing costs down for stuff like LCD displays and to get it at a level of resolution that would be suitable for a, a computer screen, the CRT was the go-to. Otherwise, you would just have a prohibitively expensive computer because the LCD manufacturing process was still relatively new. So having a giant vacuum tube also meant it was really hard to make a device that incorporated a screen and have it be portable because just the nature of the tube meant the screen had to be a pretty decent size. And what's more, because the CRT requires a vacuum, the monitors or television sets had to be extra sturdy to withstand the tremendous difference in atmospheric pressure between the inside of the CRT and the outside world. So old televisions and old computer monitors are super heavy because they had to be. Engineers had to make them out of sturdy stuff, including thick glass for those screens. And the bigger the display, the thicker the glass had to be. And glass will add a lot of weight to a device in a hurry. So while I did express some surprise that it took so long for someone to come up with the clamshell design for portable computers, in reality, it's not that big of a surprise at all because LCD screens, screens that didn't require this cathode ray tube technology had not really been a viable option for very long. Now, in the last episode, I left off with the Macintosh Portable. 
Apple's first attempt at making a laptop. And ultimately, that machine did not sell very well. It was heavy, it was bulky, it was extremely expensive. But this was also 1989, a time when it was still more common for the average household to not have a computer at all. In fact, in 1989, only 15% of households in America owned a computer, according to Statista.com. The vast majority of that 15% likely owned a desktop. So portable computers were, in general, a very tiny slice of a still relatively tiny market. The same year that Apple launched their failed first laptop, another company called NEC began a new chapter in the laptop saga, and I'll call this chapter The Notebook. Now, this is not the 2004 drama starring Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling. Instead, Notebook is a subcategory of laptop computers, and we're kind of back to that same problem I mentioned in the last episode. You know, the one where how do we distinguish between something like the difference between a hill and a mountain? You know, you normally would say a mountain is taller and steeper than a hill, but it really can't just be elevation. There's some things that we call hills that are taller than some other things that we call mountains. So it gets really subjective. Well, the same can be true with notebook and laptop. Anyway, generally speaking, notebooks are supposed to be smaller, more portable versions of laptops, which are already supposed to be portable. They're also supposed to be less powerful, or they tend to be less powerful. That's usually a trade-off in order to lighten the load and slim down the form factor. You do that partly by not including so many features, and that in turn brings down the weight of the device, the size limit of the device gets reduced, and you also can charge less for it. It costs less to make, and you can charge less when you're selling them. They tend to be positioned in the market as more of a personal computer. The full laptop would be geared more toward business times. Now, I would argue that these distinctions are so subjective as to be almost meaningless. Like, one person's laptop could be another person's notebook and vice versa, and form does not always dictate function. There are people who will use a hefty portable computer that you would never call a notebook. Kind of like the one I'm on right now. This one is a beefy Alienware gaming laptop that I've got all my notes on. It's quite heavy. And they'll use it to do light work like word processing, which I could do on any computer, especially since I'm using a web-based uh, service for all of my word processing. It's not even a, a program that's running natively on my computer. I could use anything, but I'm using this big old beefy monster here instead. In fact, I'm sure if my computer had a heart, that heart would be breaking right now because I'm using it to type out notes rather than blast zombies in Doom Eternal, but I digress. Anyway, the word notebook got some traction as various tech journalists started to use that term kind of in an effort to just make an easy distinction between lightweight laptops and the big ones. So notebooks are a type of laptop that tend to be lighter, thinner, smaller, and less powerful than their larger counterparts. NEC Ultralight fit into that category nicely. While other laptops like the Macintosh Portable were tipping the scales at 16 pounds or about 7.3 kilograms, the Ultralight was just 4.4 pounds or 2 kilograms. When closed, the Ultralight measured 1.4 inches thick. That's about 3.6 centimeters. 
The CPU ran at 8.14 megahertz. It had 640 kilobytes of RAM for system memory, and it also relied on a non-volatile battery-backed solid-state memory for storage, which was kind of interesting. I mean, this was before, really, the rise of solid-state drives. You wouldn't see that come around till a little later, and they were really expensive. But this was a way of having a lightweight, uh, long-term memory storage solution that didn't require moving parts. The standard ultralight could store one whole megabyte of data on this solid state memory. So it wasn't huge by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, back in the day, I remember when I thought a megabyte would be more than I would ever need. Oh, I was so dumb. Still am, but now I'm older. So while it supported a rechargeable battery, that being the NEC ultralight, that charge would only last a couple of hours, max. So many tech reviewers wrote that it was kind of a waste of time. I mean, yeah, you could have this super light portable computer. You could easily carry it everywhere, but you'd still have to carry a cable and plug the darn thing into the outlet. You couldn't just use it on battery power for, you know, a full day. So what's the point? I find that pretty funny today because these days I cannot take any laptop with me anywhere without the cable and expect it to last more than just a few hours. It's funny to me how the world can change. Although this is also due to the fact that, as we mentioned in the last episode, even as our computers get more powerful and more efficient, software gets more complicated and requires more assets and resources, so it nullifies all those advances uh, effectively. Well, the ultralight reviews were mixed, People thought the lightweight was impressive, but they found the lack of other features like a printer port. That made it a problem. How could you use it for business if you didn't have a port for a printer? You could swap out the floppy disk uh, external drive for a an adapter to connect a printer, but it wasn't easy. And at a list price of, of $3,000, it might have been designed to be a personal computer for leisure, but it wasn't priced like one. While this was all going on, other manufacturers were also making lightweight computers, and a lot of them were not yet following the clamshell design. The Cambridge Z88, which only weighed 2 pounds or 0.9 kilograms, was an example of this. It was not a clamshell laptop. Instead, this computer kind of looks like a calculator with delusions of grandeur. There's an LCD screen mounted above a full keyboard. The keyboard itself was a membrane keyboard, which also meant typing on a Z88 was super quiet. You could turn on a little digital click noise if it was too disturbing for you. And the computer was powered by, and I am not making this up, four AA batteries. And those four AA batteries could provide a charge of up to 20 hours of work time, which is a phenomenal design when it comes to power efficiency. Sure, this wasn't a computer you would do stuff like play modern games on or whatever, although people did create games for this machine, but it was an incredibly portable, lightweight computer, and if you needed more power, you could pop out and grab a four-pack of AA batteries and you're good. Now, I never owned one of these myself, but I understand there's a small but passionate group of enthusiasts who still tinker with them, and I think that's pretty cool. Despite computers like the Z88, the general design philosophy around portable computers was starting to coalesce behind the clamshell design that the old Compass Grid 1101 had established. And like I said in part one, I'm not going to go over every laptop. That would just be ridiculous. But I do want to cover a few notable early laptops that have their place in history. And one of those would be Apple's second attempt to design a marketable portable computer. 
the Macintosh portables were a bust. They just didn't sell very well. So the company went back to the drawing board. In 1991, a few years before Steve Jobs would come back to the company, Apple introduced the PowerBook, which was a new clamshell-style portable Mac. The company launched three models all at the same time. You had the PowerBook 100, the PowerBook 140, and then the 170. The 100 was the baseline model. The other two had additional features. For example, the 170 had a much more powerful processor. The PowerBook 100 weighed 10 pounds less than the portable Macintosh from a few years earlier. Like, remember, the portable Macintosh weighed in at 16 pounds. The PowerBook was actually much closer to 5 pounds, or around 2.3 kilograms. It had a 16 megahertz processor. It came standard with 2 megabytes of memory. We're actually in the megabyte era of RAM now. We were in the kilobyte era for a very long time there. And you could supplement those 2 megabytes of RAM with an additional 6 megabytes uh, with a special memory module. The display measured 9 inches on the diagonal. That would be about 23 centimeters, although I think pretty much everyone refers to screen size in inches these days. It was also a monochromatic screen, so it wasn't a color display yet for portable Macs. It had an expansion slot for a modem, which is pretty impressive for a laptop from 1991. And the standard amount of storage on one of these was a 20 megabyte hard drive. It also had Mac's graphic user interface, or GUI, so the regular Mac OS, the uh, one where you would have icons representing different programs, the basic type of operating system most of us are familiar with these days. But that meant you needed a way to navigate that interface. You know, that was designed for mouse and keyboard. But you're talking about a laptop, a portable machine. How do you incorporate a mouse in a portable machine? Apple's original solution was to include a trackball on the keyboard part of the laptop. So there was actually a little ball that you could use and roll around to act as your mouse. And it was positioned below the spacebar on the keyboard and in between where your hands would be if you have your fingers sitting on the rest keys of the keyboard. That placement would become the standard spot for stuff like touchpads in the near future. We're going to get to touchpads in just a second. The MacBook would also set you back $2,500. So that's about $4,750 in today's cash. So it's still pretty darn expensive. And this was the basic model of the MacBook. However, the smaller form factor and the advancements in processors and storage made it much more attractive than the old Macintosh portable computers. And the PowerBook line would succeed where the earlier ones failed. By the way, in case you're curious how the 100 compared against the other end of Apple's launch PowerBooks, you know, the, the 170 being the top end, I'll give you a very quick rundown. The 170 had a faster processor. It ran at 25 megahertz, not 16. It also had twice as much RAM as standard at 4 megabytes. You could max that out at 8 megabytes, again, with a memory module. It had a larger display. It was still a monochromatic display, but it included the active matrix technology that Apple had introduced with those old portable Macintoshes, uh, which introduced much less blur. It had a, a faster updating screen. And it came standard with a modem, which you would hook up to a phone line, and this was a good old 2400 baud modem. I'll have to go into modems in a future episode to talk about those days, because boy, do I remember them, and I don't miss them. And uh, it cost about 4600 bucks, which would be around $8,700 in today's cash. So, yowza. And the battery life on these things was good for about three hours max. 
how far we've come. All right, I've got more to say about laptops and their history in just a moment, but let's take a quick break. So just before the break, I talked about how the PowerBook line helped get Apple into the portable computer game, but I also mentioned that there was a fairly short battery life, and in general, that was becoming a bottleneck for portable computers. Processor speeds were getting better, in fact, twice as better, you might say, every 18 months or so. Thank you, Gordon Moore. Display technology was also improving, but all these components needed electricity. And if you're designing a desktop computer, that's not a big deal. You create a power supply unit for the PC that's good enough to support everything, and then you plug it into a wall outlet, and you've got a nice steady supply of juice. You're good to go. It doesn't really matter if the processor is requiring a lot more power. Everything's fine. But with a laptop, particularly a laptop that is not plugged into a wall, that is reliant upon battery power, things are different. Batteries can only store a finite amount of electricity before they need to be recharged. And that can be really inconvenient if you're in the middle of working on an important document or presentation or video or whatever. So how do you meet the challenge of delivering upon expectations where people have a bare minimum that they expect from a computer, but you also avoid either a uselessly short battery life, meaning you're always going to be plugged in, you're never going to worry about being unplugged because... It's just not, you know, a viable option. Or you go the other way. You end up having a great battery. It just also weighs a ton and makes your portable computer way less portable. How do you avoid that? Well, one way is to create a more efficient means of managing power in the first place. And that's what Intel and Microsoft set out to do when the two companies partnered to create Advanced Power Management, or APM. And APM is an API, which isn't confusing at all, right? Okay, so an API is an application programming interface, and let me explain. An application programming interface is a set of processes, functions, libraries, and other assets that act as a foundation for developers who want to create programs for a specific platform, like a specific operating system. So you've got a base set of functions on a computer that operate directly on the hardware itself. These are processes that might be hard-coded into the physical circuits of that machine. And in the old days, That's how all programming had to be done. You actually had to make physical changes to a machine by unplugging cables and plugging them into other sockets and things like that in order to to change the programming, in order to make it do something differently. Like if you wanted it to add numbers instead of subtract them. These days, we have layers of firmware and software that help manage all these interactions between the program you're running and the underlying hardware that's supplying all the assets that make that program possible. This way, programmers don't have to have a deep understanding of the underlying hardware. They don't have to change that hardware. They just need to work within the parameters of those other layers. They just need to follow the rules, in other words. So if you'd like an analogy, or even if you don't, I'll compare it to building a house. So imagine you walk up to a building site and someone's already laid a bare concrete foundation there, but there's nothing else there. That's it. You get there, there's a foundation, nothing else is is at your disposal. It's up to you to figure out how to build a house. You have to get all the stuff yourself. You have to figure it all out, maybe through trial and error. There's no one there to help you. That would be very frustrating. Or 
Imagine you walk up to a building site, there's the foundation, but there's also materials for building out a frame and tools that you're going to need to put it all together and sets of instructions on how those tools work and maybe even some examples of various styles of houses that you could build using those materials. The second approach is way easier. And that's generally how an API works. It gives developers the setting and tools they need in order to build the programs they want to run on any given operating system. Okay, but what is APM in particular then? Well, this API gave programmers tools that would allow them to build software that could run in a more optimized way on a battery-operated computer, like a laptop. The APM gives a way for each program to communicate its individual power requirements to the main system, which can then more precisely choose which programs get the juice and which ones can kind of fade back into sleep mode. The whole purpose is to conserve that sweet, sweet battery life, extending it on a single charge as much as you possibly can. So really it's just kind of like an administrator or a foreman who is looking at what is required at any given moment, dedicating the resources that are needed and saving everything else in the meantime. Now I should hasten to add, this really only applied to Windows-based PCs. Microsoft would support APM until 2006 and the debut of Windows Vista, whereupon the company introduced an updated API called Advanced Configuration and Power Interface, or ACPI. So really, it was just the next generation of that kind of power management strategy. Around this same time is when we got an early, perhaps even the first, laptop with a touchpad to act as a mouse. And this one came from an Italian company called Olivetti. Uh, there was also a similar computer from Triumph Adler, a German company, but that company had already been acquired by Olivetti earlier and had previously been owned by Volkswagen. Anyway, early touchpads weren't always the capacitive ones that we tend to use today. In fact, most of the time they weren't. Instead, capacitive touchscreens would come later. Capacitive, by the way, those are touchscreens that work by detecting touch through a change in electrical conductivity. We humans conduct electricity. So when our skin makes contact with something that has an electric field, we alter that field. And this is how smartphones and touchscreens work today. They have these grids that generate an electric field. And when we touch them, then the conductivity changes. And by pinpointing where that has happened, on the grid or matrix, the computer processor knows where you are touching and what you are doing. But there is another way to do this. Actually, technically there are a few other ways to make a touch screen, but when it comes to touch pads, there's really two big ones. So there's capacitive, but then there's also resistive touch pads or touch screens. These systems required the user to apply a bit more pressure in order to bring two layers of electrically resistive material into contact with one another. When they're in their rest state, the two layers would separate from each other. You'd have a top layer and a bottom layer, in between which you would have maybe an inert gas or just some air. And embedded in those layers are electrodes. So when you push down and you bring those two layers into contact with one another, the electrodes touch and you get a current passing through. It registers there as a touch. And there are pros and cons to both resistive and capacitive touch surfaces. Resistive touch surfaces don't need the activating point of contact to be conductive. So, for example, let's say you have a smartphone with a resistive touch screen. You could use a stick or 
a a regular pen, not a light pen or a capacitive touch pen, nothing like that, just a regular pen or whatever, a nail, not that I would recommend you do that, but you could use anything like that in order to make contact with the screen and get stuff to happen. You just have to use enough pressure, which is why you probably wouldn't want to use a nail because you'd scratch up your screen. But if you had, let's say, a smartphone with a resistive touch screen, uh, you would have a couple of different layers between your eyes and the display, the actual images. So they tend to be darker than capacitive touch screens. They also tend to suffer more from wear and tear because you're actually having to use pressure to make contact uh, and to have it register by the device. Capacitive touch screens don't require that kind of pressure. They just require a touch, but you also have to use a conductive surface to touch the screen. So if you were wearing like regular gloves, then it wouldn't work because the gloves would insulate your fingers from the surface. Uh, fun fact, this is why a few years ago, there were stories about people in Japan using hot dogs to operate their smartphones during the winter because it was too cold to go without gloves and hot dogs could stand in as a fingertip because they too can conduct electricity. Anyway, early laptop touchpads were often resistive technologies and you had to use a little bit of pressure in order for them to work. I remember having some early laptops with touchpads and the touchpad would give up the ghost after a few years but just from heavy use. While the incorporation of touchpads first came from a relatively obscure company, uh, Olivetti, but at least it was obscure here in the United States, touchpads would find their way into the designs of other laptop companies, including Apple, which would update its PowerBook lines with new models that replaced the trackball with a touchpad. And it would become a fairly standard component in laptop and notebook computers because this was also the time we were seeing a very serious shift away from text-based operating systems like DOS and moving more to graphic user interfaces like Windows and Mac OS. So you had to have something. Now, not all laptops around this time had disk drives, but those that did typically relied on the 3.5-inch disk drive. It wasn't until 1994 when IBM, which at the time was still making consumer computers, released the ThinkPad 775CD that optical drives, in this case a CD drive or CD-ROM drive, would become standard. And CD-ROM disks represented a big jump in storage capability. The 3.5-inch disk of 1994 could hold about 21 megabytes of data. A refinement of a few years later would boost that up to 120 megabytes. The information was stored magnetically on the disk, which is why you were supposed to keep floppy disks away from powerful magnets, because those magnets could realign all the magnetic particles that was on the film inside the computer disk, and thus corrupt all the data that was stored on that disk. A CD-ROM disk could hold much more data, as much as 640 megabytes. It also is optical storage, not magnetic. You could bring a powerful magnet near a compact disk, it wouldn't affect anything, because that's not how they store information. However, the ThinkPad did not have a CD burner, so you weren't storing information on CDs. You could only read information from CDs. That's where the ROM matters here. ROM stands for Read-Only Memory. That means you can pull data from the source as much as you like, but you cannot change the data and you can't add to it. A CD at this time was essentially an unchanging record. So software developers could make more complex programs on CDs and that would remove the need for users to keep track of five or six disks and then swapping out the disks whenever the computer said so, which was nice. You no longer had that hassle. 
IBM would introduce another really interesting innovation in 1995, one that wouldn't become standard, but it was really cool. It was a great idea. So it's clear that one enormous challenge early on with portable computers was miniaturizing stuff so that it could all fit into a small form factor, and also so it wouldn't be too heavy. And engineers did a great job working with various components. They optimized designs, they created crazy compact circuit boards, that allow for a notebook-style laptop. I mean, if you were to ever open up some of these laptops, you would be amazed at how tightly packed they are. Uh, in fact, remember when I said the term notebooks came out to describe slimmer, smaller laptop computers? By the mid-90s, we had a new term. These were sub-notebooks. So these were even smaller and slimmerer than those. But there was a trade-off, and that was that the keyboards for those devices tended to be more than a little cramped. I'm sure a lot of you out there have worked with laptop computers that had small keyboards. So at work, for example, I use a full-sized USB keyboard that I plug into my laptop's docking station so I can use that instead of the laptop's native keyboard because it just gets too uncomfortable after a couple of hours of typing. Well, IBM was looking at this problem and a, uh, a brilliant designer named John Caritas came up with a solution, and supposedly it occurred to him after he had been playing with building blocks with his daughter. And IBM called this solution the track right, but almost everybody else called it a butterfly keyboard. It's a little tricky to describe in audio, but I'm going to do my best. So imagine you've got a closed laptop, the screen is down, and it's the size of a, a decent compact laptop. And then you open it up, you lift the little latch and you lift the screen up. And as you do so, the you see that the keyboard begins to shift into place. It's actually two half keyboards and they're mounted on a pair of sliding bases. So as the laptop opens, the keyboard separates a bit, spreads apart, and then fits back together to become a larger keyboard. It actually is large enough to overlap on either side of the base of the laptop, meaning the base is now wider than the screen is. When you close the laptop, the same sequence happens, but in reverse. The keyboard platforms detach, they swivel a bit and fold in together to conserve space, making it more compact. And this is probably a little hard for you to imagine. So I recommend that you guys do a search for IBM Butterfly Keyboard or the ThinkPad 701C. There are videos on YouTube that show it in action, so you can actually see. In fact, there are some that explain the mechanism that was used to activate this. It was built into the hinge of the lid itself, the, the display itself. The ThinkPad 701C would be the only laptop to feature the track right, and to purchase one back in the day would set you back a cool $3,799 back in 1995. That would be about the same as spending 6,500 bucks on it today. Okay, so maybe I do see why it didn't catch on. Although I should add the keyboard was not the only thing contributing to that price tag on this one. The design, however, did get a lot of critical acclaim, including more than 20 design awards, even though it wouldn't find its way into future laptops, which is kind of a shame because it is really nifty, especially if you like stuff like Transformers, because that's what it reminds me of. Anyway, by this time, the basic components of your standard laptop were mostly in place. Nearly all were clamshell design, Nearly all had some sort of mouse replacement, like a touchpad or a trackpad. 
and nearly all had some sort of additional drive, whether it was a floppy disk drive or a CD-ROM drive. And when we come back, I'll talk about some other cool innovations and firsts in laptop history. But first, let's take another quick break. Something that happened in the 1990s that would go on to be a major influence in laptop design was the creation of the Universal Serial Bus, or USB. Today, these ports are everywhere, and they allow us to plug in all sorts of peripherals or devices into a computer or hub. They've also advanced the standard quite a bit, so now we've got USB-C and all this other stuff, but you get the point. The important point I was trying to make here is that they really eliminate the need for a lot of specialized ports that computers otherwise had to have back in the day. You know, if you bought a computer in the 90s, then you had all these different specialized ports. Like you had a port just for a mouse to plug in, one for the keyboard, one for a printer. You might have one for a joystick or gamepad. And these started to add up, right? You had all these different specialized ports, That meant that a computer had to have enough space for each of those. Uh, The engineers had to build in the actual circuit boards for each of those, the, the, the interfaces that connected the port with the computer motherboard itself. So the invention of the USB meant that you could have a universal connector that would be compatible with all sorts of different devices. So manufacturers would make USB capable or USB compatible printers, for example. So you wouldn't need a printer cable. You would just hook up a USB cable between the printer and the laptop, or you would use a USB mouse or a USB keyboard. And you no longer had to worry about all these specialized connectors. And it really simplified the design of computers in general and laptops in particular that in turn would also bring prices down. I mean, if you can streamline design, then you cut out a lot of the stuff that adds cost to the end product. So that was a big deal. Even though it wasn't directly connected to laptops, the development of USB would have an enormous impact on laptop development moving forward. Beginning in the early 2000s, around 2003 or so, companies began to offer laptop computers with DVD drives. Now, just as the CD-ROM drive had revolutionized computing about a decade earlier, so too would DVD drives. Not only could you plop a DVD film into your laptop and watch movies on the go, which was a pretty darn novel idea back in the day, you could also have software on DVDs. Software for really big programs, because while a CD could hold around 640 megabytes of data, a DVD upped the ante to 4.7 gigabytes of information, or more. If you used multi-layer encoding and you used both sides of a disk, you could have up to 17 gigabytes on a single DVD. Not that a lot of people did that, but it was a possibility. Around that same time, HP introduced the Compaq TC-1000, and this one is a bit of a hybrid computer. It had a detachable keyboard, so when you had the keyboard and the display joined together, you essentially had a notebook-style laptop, clamshell design. But you could also separate the display from the keyboard, which was pretty novel back in 2003, and then you would have a tablet PC, There was also an optional docking station you could purchase, and that would essentially turn this into a desktop, though 
It was a desktop that was severely lacking in processing power and other capabilities compared to other desktops around that same time. However, it was a real innovation and one we would see used a few times further down the road as laptops would try to masquerade as tablets or vice versa. So it was kind of the, the beginning of a trend in design, but it was a trend that was very slow to pick up because also this is 2003, this is well before the iPad and well before things like tablet computers had a widespread appeal. There were very niche jobs, like especially in the medical industry, that really depended upon tablet PCs, but you know your average person had no use for them before the iPad came around. Still, it was pretty cool to see that as early as 2003, there were companies that were working on that sort of design. In 2006, Apple made a switch from the PowerBook laptops, which had been using G4 processors for the last several generations of the PowerBook, and then introduced a new line of laptops called the MacBook. Now, by 2006, Steve Jobs had been back with the company for essentially a decade, so he was making some really big moves around this time. The iPod had already really established itself as a success, and the company was on the verge of releasing the iPhone the following year. So these MacBooks had Intel microprocessors in them, not G4 processors. They also featured webcams. And as far as I can tell, they're some of the earliest laptop computers that actually incorporated a webcam into the design, into the bezel of the display. The company offered up a range of computers in different sizes and capabilities and price tags. So if you wanted a basic MacBook, the no-frills, entry-level MacBook, that cost $1,000, really $1,099. But if you wanted the top of the line, the 17-inch MacBook Pro, when it first launched, that would be $2,799. Premium price tags from Apple products. Now, over time, Apple would phase out the 17-inch model of the MacBook, releasing the last one in 2012. And the company was really packing more power in smaller form factors, and the development of the Retina display technology would change things up a lot too. So they ultimately abandoned that, and that was when they were switching to the MacBook Air strategy. I'll talk about that more in just a second. But in 2007, we would see a new type of innovation in the laptop space. And this was the same year that Apple put out the iPhone and launched a tremendous trend in consumer smartphones. Now, there was another trend that was starting to take off with laptop computers, but this one didn't have nearly as much success as the smartphone industry, and that would be the emergence of the netbook. So yeah, we're getting back to naming conventions. We had laptops, we had notebooks, we had sub-notebooks, we had tablets, we had hybrids. Now we have netbooks. So what are those? Well, I should use the past tense for these because no one really talks about netbooks anymore. But they're even smaller devices than sub-notebooks. They're somewhere between smartphone and sub-notebook. They typically lack stuff like optical drives, so you don't have like a, a CD drive or DV drive at all. There's in fact no drives at all. This helps cut down on bulk and cost. This is not something that's unusual these days. A lot of laptops don't have any kind of optical drive in them. But they also tend to have much less powerful processors than standard laptops. They often rely on the exact same type of microprocessors that handheld devices use, like smartphones. And they offload a lot of the heavy lifting to the cloud. You're meant to use these devices to access web and net-based services rather than running programs natively on the machine. Thus, you get netbooks. In a way, 
this was a move back to the old days of dumb terminals and mainframes. So with that model, you had a centralized computer, the mainframe. Like if you might work for a big company, financial company, and they have a mainframe computer. And you would interface with that by connecting through a dumb terminal. A dumb terminal is essentially just an input and output device. Uh, commonly, you would be using keyboards and displays. And these devices have no computing power of their own. They are not computers. It's just a way for you to access the mainframe. And you could actually have a lot of different people with a lot of different dumb terminals all accessing the mainframe around the same time, though you would often have a central computer using a system called time sharing, but that's a matter for a different episode. All right, so flash forward. We move through an era where computing components get miniaturized, they get less expensive. This allows for the rise of the personal computer where people have their own computational machine at their disposal. So all the computing happens at the computer that the user is sitting at. They're not at a dumb terminal anymore. They are actually at a computer. Then we get to the point where the internet emerges from being this obscure project that only people in academia, the military, and a few research facilities are aware of, and then no one else has heard about it, and then it becomes a public utility, or at least it, it should be one. And now the internet, or rather servers that are on the internet, can fulfill a function similar to those mainframes. It's not centralized the way a mainframe is, but once again, the end user doesn't need a very powerful machine. They can access servers that's do, doing all the heavy lifting on the server end, sending the data through some web-based or net-based interface, and then you're getting the result on your device. It becomes kind of a conduit to these more powerful computers. So your computer doesn't have to be as strong. And that means you can enjoy really interesting content, especially as long as your, your machine has the capability of doing that, right? It still has to be able to display good graphics. It still has to be able to play good sound so that you can have those rich internet experiences that we've all come to expect, you know, like streaming Tiger King. Now, I know that's the second time I've made a Tiger King reference, and I should also add that uh, I haven't actually watched Tiger King. I've just absorbed all my knowledge of it from social media, because that seems to be one of two things everyone's talking about. And the other one is COVID-19. So I prefer referencing Tiger King at the time being. Anyway, what this would mean to the end consumers is that netbooks would be these super lightweight devices, and they could be really cheap compared to other laptops. The trade-off was they were also underpowered compared to laptops, and they could only run a subset of the types of software that other computers could run. Netbooks became a big category over the next few years, and companies rushed to build their own versions of these lightweight, lightly powered machines. The ASUS EPC701, E, by the way, is three E's, so I guess it's really EPC701, would be a really early example of this. In fact, a lot of people call the 701 the first netbook. But if I'm being honest with you guys, the timelines for these things get really tough to untangle. Anyway, the 701 weighed just two pounds, or 0.92 kilograms, so it was feather light compared to some of the other laptops I've talked about. And it also cost $399 when it launched, landing it solidly in the budget category for portable computers. Netbooks would tend to be so small that users would run up against some pretty tough obstacles, including those keyboards. Subnotebook keyboards are hard to type on. Netbook keyboards are painful for me. They're even more cramped than notebook or sub-notebook styles. 
And that is a downside, but I don't think that would ultimately be what led companies to abandon the netbook form factor. Most companies did that around the year 2011. I think the real reason most companies got out of the game comes down to cash money, y'all. See, budget netbooks fill a consumer need, but they're not great for profit margins. The cost of making a netbook versus the amount you get for selling the netbook is narrow enough that it was a problem for a lot of companies. I mean, if you're a company, you have a limited number of resources at your disposal. Why would you dedicate manufacturing and design resources for a product that might not even make its money back? Like the amount that you're pouring in, you're not getting back in your return on investment. You could use that same amount of time and effort designing other stuff that has a better return. And so for many reasons, but mostly money, companies started to back off of making netbooks around 2011. We did see slightly larger laptop computers that otherwise followed the netbook philosophy, however. These still had a focus on web and net-based services, but they also would include slightly higher-end features like better displays, which in turn would mean the price tags would be higher. And that's sort of where we've seen the budget market settle. They're bigger than netbooks typically. They're not necessarily as big as full laptops. They're somewhere in that sub-notebook range, perhaps. There are other examples of laptops that we could talk about, like MacBook Air, Apple's extremely thin, light laptop that essentially replaced the older MacBook line. Or we could talk about the Chromebook, which are laptops that are running Google's Chrome operating system. They rely almost exclusively on web-based services. There's Lenovo's YogaBook C930. That's a laptop that replaces the physical keyboard with a second touchscreen that's powered by e-ink. So you will have an e-ink touchscreen keyboard. You're typing on a screen rather than on physical keys. And I'm not going to lie, I actually really dig the design of the YogaBook. I don't own one, and I don't know how comfortable it would be to use, but I think it's a really nifty-looking look device. Um, or we could go back to 2011. You could talk about the Razer Blade gaming laptop, which the company Razer referred to as the world's first true gaming laptop. Now, whether you agree with Razer or not, it is true that since then we've seen more companies build laptops with the intended purpose of serving as a gaming rig. And again, the computer I used to type up all my notes for this episode is one of those. It's that Alienware 17R4 laptop, and I do love it but I would never carry it around with me because it weighs like 10 pounds and it's about the size of a coffee table. Okay, it's, it's not really that big, but it is large enough that I actually don't have a computer bag big enough to fit this thing in it. But I still love this computer. Don't get me wrong. Now, I'm sure we'll continue to see lots of innovations in the laptop space, whether it's incorporating eye tracking technology and webcams to give you the ability to control your computer just by moving your eyes, Lots of computers have that. Mine has that. Or computers that have their own voice-activated assistants to more purpose-built machines that do a subset of things incredibly well. You know, we're watching as companies are working to differentiate their products from all of the competition. And as you can imagine, that gets pretty tough because you can only say, you know, this is like the old one, but faster because people will start to lose interest. So I'm sure we're going to see more kind of innovative, funky perhaps even outlandish design choices, some of which will succeed and some of which we'll never see again. My hope is that the track ride will come back in some way because that was just such a cool design. And it's a shame that it was only ever used on one computer. But that wraps up our history of laptop computers. 
we will move on to a different topic for our next episode. But if you guys have suggestions for future Tech Stuff episodes, reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for both is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.